we take for granted the concept of software as tool, but it didn't always exist. Mini scripts, the interoperable programs, the small utilities for specific tasks, etc. This is what we're going to discuss. Where do they come from, the history, and a bit more. I'm Vietnam and you're listening to The Nixers Podcast. There is a type of program that we write for a special runtime environment that automates the execution of tasks that could alternatively be executed one by one manually. This is what we call scripts. There are other definitions of what scripts are, but let's stick to this for for this podcast. Usually scripts are interpreted, like we said, runtime, rather than compiled. For example, the shell is a scripting environment. Uh, Perl also, and other dynamic high-level languages could be considered scripting environment. The usual idea of scripting is to combine smaller repetitive tasks to create more complex tasks and automate them, to script them. However, one problem that emerges from this technique is that programs may still need to communicate with one another. It becomes mandatory to insert a middleman that will reshape the output of one program so that it's compatible with the input of another. This code or software that is added is the glue code or glue language and its sole purpose is to connect software components together. The concept of glue code is seen everywhere from wrappers like decorators in some languages to adapter patterns and object-oriented programming to the pipelines in the shell. Glue code is useful for a lot of reasons. It's quick to write, it keeps the part on both sides separate and thus makes them easier to maintain, it creates interoperability between components, it's simpler than to break the separate pieces and dig in their code and learn how they work, it's even valid when you don't even have access to the source of the softwares on both sides. On the other hand, it's considered somewhat of a sort of duct tape programming, a quick fix that might not last. It also has cost of performance penalties for the adoption, for the adaption code that is in the middle and the transfer of this information, which is usually some sort of input-output mechanism. So you get the gist of it. Let's give some notable examples, be them text processing or macro languages, preprocessor, etc. Mostly text processing utilities. You got nRAF, graph, trough, dtrough, graph, all those, dcbc, x, ed, grep, set, diff, the c preprocessor, m4, vi, makefile, awk, and much more. You've definitely heard of those names before. They're very unixy. All of them are used on the shell and scripts to automate tasks, but it wasn't always that way. We may take for granted those softwares. We may take for granted the idea of a software as a tool. Where did the idea come from? Pipes were first implemented in Unix in 1972 by Doug McElroy. The idea is simple but powerful. To allow the standard output of the program on the left side of the pipe to be the standard input input of the program on the right side of it. This sounds more practical than to use other means of inter-process communication, such as databases, sockets, or simply a file. 
After pipes were invented, this led to some room for new ways of thinking. But this didn't really happen before some event, some particular event. Doug McIlroy, the creator of pipes, still warm and happy about them, was working on a text-to-speech program and wanted to manipulate large dictionaries. The ad editor didn't fill the task properly. It was too cumbersome. With the fresh ideas of pipe in mind, he then asked Ken Thompson if he could extract the regex feature from ad and make it standalone, capable of accepting input and output so that it could be used in the pipeline. And it was the creation of the grep utility. It became obvious to McElroy after this small but meaningful event that there was a useful pattern to be extracted, the one of software tool, an idea that was later better articulated in the book Software Tools by Kernigan and Plover. This insightful idea became a guiding principle to build programming environments. The software methodology that followed is the well-known one, the so often heard each tool utility achieving its end and role internally, the do one thing and do it well, the single functionality program, the program as a generic as possible, accepting STD in, STD out. And this is where the concept of software as tool comes from. This was truly a new style of computing and thinking on how to attack problems, from a bottom-up approach. With a bunch of tools, we link, combine them together to create softwares. Small parts coupled to build a whole, and not a big monolithic block of software. If a feature is part of a particular environment, but is useful to so many other developers, then why not separate it as its own utility, making it fun and helpful to use by other programmers? Not only that, not only that, there were now tools to facilitate the creation of tools such as Yak and Lex. The general concept is a trademark features of Unix. So let's dive in the history and concept of some of the most popular of those tools that are used as glue code and scripts and much more around this history. A utility without a manual is of no utility at all. Rough apparently was the first Unix text formatting computer program and the first application to run on the first machine specifically purchased for Unix. But it has many predecessors. To understand it, we have to go back in history. It was a Unix version of the runoff text formatting program for Miltix, which was a def descendant of runoff for the compatible time sharing system project at MIT in 1964. The runoff of the CTSS, the Compatible Time Sharing System, was one of the first, if not computer text formatting program. How did runoff work and what did it do? It was composed of two programs, one called Typeset, a document editor, and runoff, the output processor. The role of the typesetter is to do typesetting which is to arrange text on a page, change the font, the colors, etc. Kind of like a word processor does. Tech and LaTeX are typesetters too. Markdown includes some of the features of typesetting, though it lacks a lot of them like paginations, page spaces and text modification, colors. Well, actually, it's not really a, a typesetter. Generally, you have a specific syntax or way of doing things that applies something over the text, 
like spacing, bullets, colors, styles, land, size, aspect, anything. That's the idea. Run off supported pagination, headers, and text justification. The name is said to have come from the phrase I'll run off a copy or run off a document, which means to print it out. This explains why it's such an important software. Remember the move from physical typewriters to typewriters connected to computers to glass teletype to raster graphics, etc. Typewriters are made to edit text and people wanted to keep that initial feature, right? Miltix had its own version, run off. This this case it's uh, it's all in lowercase. That's the difference. That was the successor of the runoff for the CTSS. Rough and NRAF are the successors of the Miltix version. One of its important usage was for manual pages in Unix. However, the pages were only written in runoff since the fourth Unix edition, though some accounts say that it's from version 1 through 3, though some other places say that the first two years Unix didn't even have any documentation, though. In all cases, they started using runoff documentation because Doug McElroy insisted on it. And to this day, this is regarded as one of the great advancements, to be able to have manuals for everything on the system. And the lack of documentation, on the contrary, on Unix is even seen as a lack of quality. The Unix version in 1970 was a part of the BCPL version of runoff made for Miltix and to the PDP7 assembly language. When Rough started being used for man pages, it instantly became popular within Bell Lab's patent department. It was the first Unix application used by people other than the developers themselves. A real usage. It was flexible, easily modifiable, and with real-world usage. So providing features to it was an important factor to the adoption of Unix. It filled the word processing needs of the patent department, in this case, Altogether, this gave credibility to the project and secured funding for the purchase of the PDP-11. When they got the PDP-11 in the late 1970s, they started transliterating it into the PDP-11 assembly. This version was done ar around 1971, it was completed. Some say that runoff was the hook that justified the cost of getting this PDP-11. There's a long history of passing the code, passing the torch, adding more and more features to runoff, polishing its code, making it more interoperable, making it work on all machines, all output types, etc. I've linked in the show notes a sort of tree history of the oh-so-many runoff-like softwares. And this is a noble piece of software. For example, in 1972, Joseph Osana took over the PDP-11 RAF and built a version for the graphic system CAT Phototype Setter, which the lab just acquired. He called it T-RAF for Times RAF, because the Times font family was the most popular apparently, or others say it was for Typesetter RAF. A Typesetter is sort of the ancestor of the modern printer, so don't sweat the definition, it takes some specific program and typeset the text and print it. TRAF was basically an add-on over NRAF with some if-death to produce and remove specific features of the new typesetter. Pre-processing is transforming part of the document so that they are compatible with it. Osana's TRAF was not so extensible, written in PDP-11 assembly and produced specific output for the CAT phototypesetter only. 
He then started re rewriting it in C to make it support multiple vendors. However, he died of a heart attack before finishing the work in 1977. Brian Kernighan took over the task and called it DTRUF for Device Independent Truff, and this was in 1979. On and on, several new pre post whatever proce processors appeared for graphs, pics, references, etc. This went on. In 1989, James Clark implemented a GNU version of DTRUF called Gruff, which was released in 1990. It included many features, post-processors for character devices, post-script, tech, DVI, X-Windows, it had a front-end event to facilitate the construction of pipelines, and much more. Gruff, in conclusion, was one important piece in the Unix arsenal, even though it might not look like a software that would be so important to us now today. Let's move to other well-known tools, DC and BC. DC stands for Desk Calculator. It's the oldest living Unix language. It was the first program to be run on the newly acquired PDP-11, the one that they secured funding for because of the runoff success. The first version was written in B, so it predates the C language, by Robert Morris and Lorinda Cherry, which are also the author of BC, which we'll tackle in a bit. I'm not sure of what time it was created, but it was present in Unix first edition, so around 1971 maybe, or before. So what is DC all about? It's a calculator language that uses reverse Polish notation and has arbitrary precision arithmetic. And what does that mean? DC is first of all a mini-language. It has storage, registers, usually single-letter variables, operation, it has basic conditional expression, and even some versions have support for macros. It's not your average general-purpose programming language, but it's a domain-specific language. It's made specifically as a calculator. A calculator of arbitrary precision. So what does arbitrary precision mean? It's something we take for granted today. The way you can control the number of fractional digits, the scale, aka the number of digits following the decimal point. However, by default, it's set to zero, so setting it at the start of the program is a good idea. So the last part, the one we didn't discuss yet, is the particularity of this calculator, that it uses RPN, the reverse Polish notation. What is it? RPN, reverse Polish notation, is a method of expressing mathematical expression by putting the operands before the operator, as in 4, 5, plus would mean keep 4 and 5 on the side and then apply plus to them. This is also called a postfix notation and in contrast with the nfixed notation, the one we commonly use where the operators are in between the operands. The advantage is that programmatically it is easier to implement by using stacks. We push operands on the stack and when we see operators we take as many operands from the top of the stack as we need, compute the result and push it back on top of the stack. However, as you would have guessed, it's not as intuitive to use. So here comes BC. BC stands for Basic or Bench Calculator and it's the NFIX notation version of DC. It is more user-friendly with a syntax resembling the C programming language. It was introduced in 1975 in Unix v6 
also by Robert Morris and Lorinda Cherry, the same author of DC, as we said. It was implemented as a wrapper or frontend over DC. A simple 100-line compiler and yak converted the BC-like into, in, into the DC postfix not notation and then piped the result through DC. The conditions and variables and all that stuff are easier to write in BC. Later on, in 1991, POSIX standardized BC. There exists today two implementations of the standard, of the POSIX standard. The front-end version implemented in Plan 9 and others, and the GNU BC version. Though I, I'm sure there are other implementations that I didn't find about. The GNU BC version released in 1991 is no longer being a front-end to DC, and it has many extensions and new features, like not being limited to having variables, arrays, and function names limited to a single character only. So let's discuss exactly that, the usage of both. How do you use them? DC is quite straightforward when it comes to usage. You type the RPN directly and the terms get added to the stack and the program and to print the result on top of the stack, aka the value that you pop out, you can type P and to quit you can type Q. The interface is really add-like, so when we're going to see add, you're going to think about it. DC also offers one-letter variables called registers. They are a second place of storage other than the stack of the RPN to store the value that is on top of, on top of the stack and the C register. You can use SC and to retrieve it, to put it on the top of the stack, you can use LC. So it's a sort of storage space. As with BC, if you start it, it will be an interactive mode like DC. You type like you'd normally type your usual calculation in C. So 1 plus 4 times 2. And it will output the, the result. No need for a P command if you don't assign the value to a variable. BC has conditions and loops too, with a similar syntax as in C. DC has conditions, but they're kind of ugly to write once the expression becomes big enough. And as we said, the precision of both calculator is by default zero. To set it in DC, you push the scale you want into the stack and pop it using the K command, which will set it as the scale. For BC, you assign the scale uh, to the scale variable, or you can start the program BC with the dash L flag, which will set the number of decimal decimal point to 20 and will also enable some mathematical functions in the language because it doesn't have by default all the mathematical function. According to the POSIX BC it only has a square root by default. And with the dash L you'll get sine, cosine, arctangent, natural logarithmic and a bunch of others. There's a lot more features you can dig into those languages. Let's just mention that there are some subtle differences between the C syntax and BC. For example, the modulo operator in C is not really modulo and, uh, and BC. It depends on the scale variable. The caret in C is XOR, but in BC it is the exponent. Now, there's an interesting backstory I'd like to mention. Robert Morris the author is also an expert in cryptography who later worked for the NSA. His son, Robert Tappan Morris, is the author of the Morris Worm, the first worm on the internet and the first person convicted under the then-new Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. He also founded a company with Paul Graham of Y Combinator, which you might have heard through Hacker News. 
The word is small, isn't it? And I find this kind of ironic considering that for some time DC was used as a memento for RSA encryption and the controversy against crypto export in the US and Canada. You can find some links about it in the show notes. People even got it tattooed on them, which is kind of fun. Another classic is Ed. Ed is a line editor, aka the standard editor. It was one of the first part of the Unix operating system that was developed in August 1969. It is also part of the POSIX standard as one of the essential tools. It was developed early on by Ken Thompson on the PDP-7 as a mandatory element of the operating system, it being the editor that goes along with the assembler and the shell. Many feature came from QED, a piece of software that originated from Berkeley University, which is the university Thompson studied at, which made him very familiar with it. He even re-implemented it on the CTSS and also on Multix with a BCPL version. His big addition to the mix was regular expression, which is also a big feature of ED. QED stands for Quick Editor. And it is also a line-oriented text editor. It was developed at Berkeley in 1965 for the time-sharing system running on the SDS 940. QED was not only influential for Thompson alone, it was also influential for Dennis Ritchie and Brian Kernighan and the whole team, because they wrote the QED manual used at Bell Labs. So they were familiar with it. Dennis Ritchie later on produces a version of Ed that Doug McElroy describes as the definitive Ed. I can't really find much about it, but I think it was a C rewriting of Ed. So why the line-oriented text editor and what does that mean? Line-oriented, a line-by-line -line editor, actions overline, very succinct output is what is meant by line-oriented, which is contrasted with editors such as Vim or Emacs that are more visual. To understand this decision, we have to realize the type of machines they were using to interact with the operating system. Typewriters. If you've listened to the podcast about terminals, you might have a clue to what they are. They are very simple terminals that use typewriter, a keyboard and paper that is printed on. This kind of interaction is slow, and so interactive editors are not especially good with them, but it is good for line-by-line -line editing and scripting. So ad usage is very linear, as you would have imagined, but what does it actually look like? You specify a file to add on the command line so that it opens it, and then you're faced with a prompt. Like a shell, you give it comments to execute on lines, and some of the comments return outputs on the screen directly. Some don't. You don't see the entire files as you're editing it. You specify a range of line, comma separated, and an operation to perform over them. For example, 1, comma, 5L will display lines 1 through 5. And if you're familiar with Vim, then this shouldn't be surprising because most of it is included in it through VI and X inspiration. We'll talk about those in another part, so don't worry. So here are some of the comments within Ed. L to print, I to insert, A to happen, W to write, Q to quit, G to go to the top, uppercase G to go to the end of the file, T, D to delete, G slash some regular expression slash something to, to find. Anyway, as you could have guessed, Ed had become famous or more like infamous for its terseness. It has even been called the most user-hostile editor ever created. 
probably because according to today's standards, the lack of visual feedback is regarded as backward-minded. For example, the message that Ed will produce in case of error or when it wants to make sure the user wishes to quit without saving is a question mark. Some older version didn't even ask for confirmation when quitting. Ed doesn't do anything unless it's requested to do it or display it. So why should you use Ed today and in which case is it used in a word of editor with visual feedback? It's available on essentially all Unix system because it's mandatory by POSIX. It's sometimes inside other model editors such as VI. It's a powerful automation tool that can be used with standard input, standard output. The add style of interface, the add pattern, or maybe we have to put it as the QAD pattern, has inspired many more descendants. Many other programs use this type of interface, for example, GDB. The pattern sometimes comes with a downside. It's not always as easily scriptable. X, the extended ad, is also a line editor written by Bill Joy in 1976 as a more friendly version of ad, or more precisely, a modified version of George Coloris' improved ad called EM. The version of George Coloris took advantages of video terminals, which the Bell Labs didn't have at the time. Colorist considered Ed to be way too hard to use, only suitable for, and quote, immortals, as he put it. Thus, he modified it and created the EM editor, which was specifically designed for display terminals and was also line-by-line -line editor. It was arguably one of the first programs to use extensively the raw terminal input mode, bypassing the terminal line discipline. You can check the podcast about terminals to know more about this topic. Anyway, Bill Joy liked it and modified his version to create EXX. Then a full screen visual interface was added to X, which turned it into the VI text editor. Thus, X is part or a mode of VI. Ed also influenced the creation of Grab and Sad, which we'll talk about separately later on. So it is more or less true that Ed doesn't have much practical use today as an interactive program, that most of its cool features are present in other places, so it's not really useful in its own. Still, it's nice to learn how it's an integral part of many other tools. Let's specifically talk about VI now. VI, unlike Ed, is a screen-oriented text editor. It was written by Bill Joy in 1976, as we said, and it's part of POSIX. It was made as the visual mode for X line editor, and so the first few releases within BSD were also named X, and in May 1979 the editor was installed under the name VI, which is short for visual, and took the user directly in the visual mode of X. However, the VI we use today isn't really a di direct descendant of this one. There's way more history behind it. As we said, Bill Joy and friends were inspired by Colorist EM and extended it to create EX, then added a full screen visual mode to X, and there was VI. As with all the work that was done, it was all a superposition of ideas and code, one over the other. And the same goes for the visual mode. It was inspired by the Pravo editor, which is said to be the first what you see is what you get editor. Not surprisingly, Bravo was made at the Xerox Park in 1974. 
So many ideas were taken from Bravo. For example, the dot comment is the double escape from Bravo. And for those not in the know, uh, it's the redo command within Vim or VI. So what kicked off VI? Joy created the BSD Unix in March 1978, which gave him the option to ship freely his new editor, X, and then VI, as we said, within it. It gave it exposure, and because at the time there weren't that many editors that came with Unix, basically only Ed, it gave rise to the success of VI. On the other side, Emacs, which the version at the time wasn't a free as in free beer, would cost hundreds of dollars, apparently. And to be clear, we're not talking about GNU Emacs, which didn't appear before 1985, but an earlier version also called Gosling Emacs or Unipress Emacs. I digress, it was free, at least within Unix, as we'll see in a bit. We mentioned that earlier that VI was made as an update to EX, but it was actually a hard link to X visual mode that started to be shipped within BSD2 because everyone that was using X was using its visual mode more than anything. Which brings the question, is VI X? Yes, in a sense, until it got upgraded specifically for its visual mode only. With that new way of thinking, thinking first visual. Same goes for all the previous projects we talked about in this podcast. They are all work upon work upon work. As people learn new techniques, even though those were not always clean and elegant and pompous, people just tried implementing new things over the work of others. Billjoy implemented the visual mode because he thought it was primarily useful for others. These days, the attraction to VI stems from how lightweight and efficient it is. However, in its first iteration, VI was a very large program. It could barely fit in the memory of the PDP-11. Even the version 3.1 shipped in BSD-3 in 1979 couldn't fit anymore within the memory of a PDP-11. Now, back to what I said. It was free, at least within Unix. That is because it was only available through commercial Unix vendors such as Sun, HP, DEC, and IBM, which included the code until VI 3.7 with some of their own customizations and their OS namely Solaris, HPUX, True64 Unix, and X. The version included in those OS descends directly from VI, though with modifications. I mention this because this isn't the case everywhere. X and VI, being based on Ed, were burdened by the AT&T licensing, and thus people looking for a free editor would have to use something else. For example, Minix created a VI clone called Elvis. Remember the whole war that AT&T led against the BSDs? It was not until BSD Unix started relicensing its code that they realized the issue. First, in 1992, in their 386 BSD, they used Elvis as a replacement for VI. Then, in BSD 4.4 Lite in 1994, Elvis was used as a starting point to create NVI, or new VI, a more one-to-one correspondence with VI. This is the version of VI that is used today in FreeBSD and NetBSD. It's only recently in 2002 that the original version of VI were allowed to be distributed legally, which is sort of ironic that the BSD which were created by Bill Joy don't include the initial version of VI that he wrote. So what's so special in VI usage that separate it from Ed? First of all, VI is modal. That, that means it can work in different modes. There's a mode to access the add feature, 
a mode for applying comments, the normal mode, there's a mode for direct editing, insert mode, and others. It also has the idea of combining single letters keys to create a full comment to be applied over text. For example, in VI you can type CW, some text, and escape. It would mean change a word by the some text, and this operation can be then repeated with the redo comment, the dot that we mentioned earlier. There are many critics of this way of interaction, that there are too many single letters common and that they are hard to remember, though arguably those were single characters because the connection of the terminal was slow and it needed to be efficient rendering-wise, but not memory-wise, which is kind of fun to think about. Another critic is that it is lacking mouse interaction, that is lacking feedback when switching mode, and lacking uh, multiple undo levels. Which is all because internally VI is just X with a nicer UI, with a visual UI. And the last thing to tackle with VI is the origin of the iconic HJKL keys and the usage of the escape key. Those keys were chosen because of the ADM3A terminal, the one Joy used. The escape key was at the location where tab is normally these days, on the left of the keys, which is a good location, and the HTKL keys served as cursor movement because on the keyboard those were printed with the arrow keys on them, and the ADM3A terminal had no cursor keys to begin with, so he couldn't even use them. And another bene here is that you can use control sequences to simulate escape, like with control left square bracket, so that does the trick too. Back in time again with grep. We talked a bit about its history earlier, so let's go back to it. Grep is simple. It's one of the most commonly used commands on Unix. It's a command that searches the input file for a pattern using regular expressions and prints the line that contains it. This is it, end of the line, nothing more. Grep, as we said, was created by Ken Thompson in March 1973, soon after the implementation of Pipes as a standalone application based on the request from McElroy so that he could get ad matching facilities outside of ad. The name is literally the comment that were initially used inside ad g slash irregular expression slash p globally search a regular expression and print it. G is for global, the slash regular expression slash for the search, and P to print the result. If you're familiar with VI, it is the same comment as we mentioned earlier. With X, for example, you would do X dash C and the G slash regular expression slash P in the file. And with grep, you would simply do grep, whatever you search for, and the file you want to search in. Or you could pass it as STDN. However, Grab didn't directly get included as a tool for Unix. According to McElroy, he kept it as a personal tool for a while until he finally decided to make it public. From what I could see, the tool official release was only 7 to 8 months in November after its creation in March. However, I'm not sure of my sources and I'm not sure if it was released internally way earlier. Anyway, he was parsing a dictionary in a horrible, inefficient way for a project and once he got his hand on this Grab, it worked like a charm and a chain of pipe programs. It became such a useful tool and led to the start of the understanding of the concept of software as tools. It is often stated as the prototypical software tool that is credited with 
irrevocably ingraining Thompson's tools of philosophy and Unix. As with others, the software morphed and diverged over time. Al Aho, also a researcher at Bell Labs and the co-author of AUK, wrote eGrep and FGrep one weekend in 1975 and they got introduced in Unix v7. eGrep is for extended regex using a method by Aho himself. FGrep for a list of fixed strings using Aho Korasic string matching algorithm. Historically, grep and egrep both took turn being faster than the other. The modern version within GNU and BSD have deprecated egrep and fgrep. They are no alias to grep, they are linked. According to POSIX, grep should have the dash E and dash F switches for compatibility for both egrep and fgrep. Back to the topic, grep is so iconic that it is used by everyone as a word to it indicates searching for something. So much that in, no in December 2003, the Oxford English Dictionary Online added dr a draft entry for grep as both a noun and a verb. And I'm not sure if it has now been officially included, because it seems like it is. There's nothing indicating that it is a draft. Last thing to mention is also related to the massive influence it got. As an example, there's a lot of tools with the word grep in it. The pgrep utility, for example, that displays the processes whose name match a given regular expression. It got something started within the community, the creation of mini-tools that did one thing. The next one is exactly that. We're going to tackle said. It wasn't long before the creation of Grab led to the invention of other special purpose tools. The next ideas were kind of obvious. A Grab-like tool but for substitution, a so-called Gress it would be, a Gred for deletion, a Gria for appending, and so on. There seemed to be a no end to this program as tool thing. And that's when Lee McMahon saw that in 1973. Same year as before, he decided to merge all those concepts into a single tool. A sort of ad, but that could be used on the pipeline. He called it SED for Stream Editor. To edit right in the pipeline, in the stream. SED is more or less a literal ad in the pipeline, thus its language is very similar to the one of ad. Ed was kind of universal at the time, so it was common knowledge and intuitive to use SED. The power of SED comes from how it allows to edit in the middle of a pipeline pass-through and the flexibility and complex kind of editing and pattern matching it allows. This is the epitome of the man-in-the-middle glue scripting we talked about. It can easily adapt its input to fit the output and it does that really fast. It's on par with languages like awk or Perl for that matter. It's even Turing complete. It was a dream come true for programmers that were using slow teletype terminals and had to do basic editing. It is still a key tool today to edit huge files in a single pass-through instead of using an interactive editor. It does that by reading the file line by line into an internal buffer called the pattern space, then apply operation on this line, output the modified line if it needs to, and continue the cycle. It is quite efficient. However, you'll rarely see SED today being used to its full potential. All you'll see 
is its simple replace feature, while in FLAC there are more than 20 plus other commands available in said language. It's a full Turing complete language with two variables, well only two, the pattern space we talked about and the hold space, a sort of storage, and it has conditions via a sort of go-to-like branching using label and using the B comment for to, to call that label. So how is it used? You call it on the command line, said, followed by the said script file, passed as an argument, or the script written directly on the pipeline. It can accept the file as input, or it can take it from the stream, as we said. The important part is the expression syntax. I won't list all the comments here, but I can mention some. For example, s is used for substitution, it is followed by a slash separating the pattern match, regex and the string for, to substitute the match with. The D is used for deletion, I for insertion, A for appending, R to append the text from another specific file to the current one, Y to transliterate it from one character set to another, and much more. Commons and said may also take optional address, so that you can specify where to apply them. It could be a line number or a regular expression. For example, when you do 2D, it would delete only the second input line and print all the others, while a slash caret and space slash D would delete all lines beginning with a space. That's a regular expression so that everything starts with a space and deletes. You can see why for a long time no one saw a utility for the head tool and instead intuitively used said 10Q instead, which prints the first 10 line and then apply the Q comment for quit. Today we even have more powerful set versions available, arguably and probably a bit slower though. For instance, GNU set had several new features including end-place editing of files. The original set is sort of lost in history, though Eric Raymond reverse engineered it probably in 1995 as I could guess and released it as mini set which was the default set for a while instead of GNU set and is also the default set in Minix. Said was the big inspiration for the next mini-language we're going to discuss, awk, which in itself was the inspiration for Perl, again, everyone influences everyone else. Awk stands for the initials of its creator. Alfred Aho, if you remember, it's the guy who implemented the extended regex grep version, egrep, Peter Weinberger, and Brian Kernighan. It was made in 1977, so four years after the previous tool said. In 1985, a new version called NAUK or NewAUK made the programming language more powerful, now letting the user define its own functions, adding multiple input streams, and computed regular expressions. This version was popularized within Unix System 5, released in 1987. As with the other tools, AUK is in the POSIX specification standards. AUK, like said, is a programming language designed for text editing. However, unlike said, it isn't mainly for editing streams. It specializes in a more data-driven approach. It is more for extraction and transformation than editing. As with said, it also both act on input streams and files. To understand awk, you have to get the generic usage. It takes a pattern, a regex for matching, and an action to extract and transform the data from the line matching that pattern. Or you can omit one of the, of the two, like you can omit the pattern and leave the action, or you can omit the action and only leave the pattern, and it will print all the line matching this pattern. 
The extraction mechanism automatically understands separators and format. By default, it's split the input by columns, which can, you can act upon via variables that get assigned directly. The action part of ARC is a full language. It includes strings and associative arrays. It's actually the language that first popularized the usage of associative arrays, arrays in which the index keys are strings. The associative array allows to easily generate and report information over a huge amount of data, accumulating information on each stream parsing. The language itself is easier to read than said, and it's C-like. And as with other tools, there are newer versions of, of it. GAWQ was written between 1985 and 1988 by Paul Rubin with advices from Richard Stallman. If you remember, NAWQ was released in 1985-1987, so the releases were close in time. GAWQ was, like any other tool, extended by even more people afterward. In May 1997, it got even more extended by Jürgen Kahers, which added network access features to GAWQ. So it's a very full programming language. Also, as with said, VI and others, the original version of the AUK tool was kept closed behind doors until Brian Kernighan's NAUK, the new AUK source, was publicly released in the late 1990s. This version is now used by many BSD systems to avoid the GPL license. The last tool we're going to talk about is make and the makepile. It isn't really a glue tool, but it's an important one for scripting. Make is a build automation tool, more often but not limited to creating executable programs and libraries from source code by reading a file named makefile. The make utility is used to interpret the makefile. More precisely, it's a dependency tracking build utility. It knows when the timestamp of all the dependency changes and act accordingly doing the minimum amount of work necessary, rebuilding only what depends on those updated files. Historically, it was created in, the, in April 1976 by Stuart Feldman at Bell Labs and included in Unix starting with the first edition. Feldman got the idea of Make when one of his co-workers was having trouble debugging a program but didn't realize that the executable wasn't updated with the changes he made to the code thus rendering the changes useless and wasting time chasing invisible bugs. This person that was debugging was Steve Johnson, the author of Yak, a parser generator that was used for a bunch of other tools we mentioned. Thus, Feldman thought of building a dependency analyzer, but came up with something much simpler and created the make utility over a weekend. The makefile language parsing was made using Johnson's Yak. This was great because before make, they used separate shell scripts accompanying source code to build projects, including all the abstract target dependencies and tracking them in a single file was a big move forward. So this makefile lists the dependencies, but what's in a makefile? Makefiles are relatively simple. They are a set of directives, targets, dependencies, and comment accompanying them. Concretely, it contains five kinds of things, explicit rules, implicit rules, variable definitions, directives, and comments. A comment is anything that is after a pound character. An explicit rule is a label, a target, it lists other files or targets that depends on it, that are prerequisite to it, and make will rebuild this target if any dependency changes. The implicit rules is similar 
to the explicit one, but it's for a class of file based on their names. For example, you could create a rule for any C header files. The variable definition is a simple assignment, like in the shell, it can be used for substitution later. And building on the directive means executing the command or instruction that is under the label, but those directives should be tab indented. There are two critics to this tab indented things and the comment. One, each comment is executed in a separate shell and this is system dependent, thus not so portable. Secondly, the tab is a white space character and thus could mislead the users making the tab character visible would solve this in some cases. The tab was used because Yak was kind of new and the author wasn't accustomed to it. He was just learning to create something useful out of it. But it worked and spread too fast to revert the changes back. Anyway, this is as far as it goes. You got targets, dependencies for it, and comments to execute after the dependencies and prerequisites have been fulfilled. So you can see that this is not limited to C programming, contrary to what some may think. It's a valid build system for anything that has dependencies or that need changes to be tracked. Uh, they are a good way to bundle up little procedures together, to script, for example, or for when making distribution packages. Usage-wise, make is invoked on the command line with make and the target that you want to make. It uses the make file named makefile by default, but it could have any other name that you can specify. Without argument, it will try to build the first target that appears in the file. And one thing to note here is that the targets don't need to be in any specific order inside the make file. Make will understand the dependencies between them automatically. Today there are a ton of other build systems, which I won't cover, there's really a lot. And they all have advantages and disadvantages. You can probably guess what kind of conclusion I'm going to give to this podcast. You probably realize after two of those tools, they're all linked through history, they all learned from the one before, and this is probably totally un unrelated to the topic, but it's the most apparent relation. Everything is a remix, and it's great. It made me respect those humble tools. And there are much more that I didn't mention. After learning most of this history, I think the concept of the tool as glue code is less about gluing code and more about solving problems and efficient and human ways. The pipeline has its place there, but probably not the skewed extremist view of the Unix philosophy as minimalist radicalism we kind of see in some places today. So get your pipeline ready, get your scripts ready, think of how to improve them, try all the tools mentioned and others, and more importantly, have fun. This was Venom for the Nixers podcast. Mm -hmm.